Last week I was replacing the blades on my lawnmower and I happen to be one that if I'm working on a project I love to have either something like Ravi Zacharias with a teaching ministry that I'm listening to or sometimes and when I'm outside and it's summer and it's warm I like to listen to summer music. And I noticed on Slacker Radio, they have this thing as I'm looking through, what can I listen to today? And it says, 44 top songs of summer. I'm like, yeah, I'm outside, it's warm, it's beautiful, and I can just imagine the songs that I'm going to hear. They are the top songs of summer. So certainly we're going to hear things like Mungo Jerry, right? In the summertime when the weather is hot, you can stretch right up and touch the sky, Right? That's what we're going to listen for, because this is summer music. We get it, don't we, people? All right? We mentioned a couple weeks back, you know, the Three Dog Night, with Jeremiah was a bullfrog. And I know that was a summer song, because every time I listen to it, I remember painting my parents' house during the summer, and that came on, right? I know, that's summer music for sure. But perhaps, is there anything that says more than summer, than songs about the beach. And here's one. Could somebody please, Brenda, are you there? Or Tim? Who's the can't be Tim. Oh, that's Tim Panic. There we are. Let's get the lights down because you're going you're gonna to want to see this. Here's a song about the beach. Now, we're going to listen to this. And what I want you to catch is at the end, I want you to catch the dear women at the end. Okay? So, here we go. Interesting song. Summer song professional careers just about five years ago, and in that time they have uh, time and again had repeated hit records. Their first was called Jenny Lee, then they had the big record uh, Heart and Soul, and their latest is uh, something called Surf City, and it now is just about the number one record in the whole country, and uh, that's quite something. They have sold over a million singers and 150,000 albums of Surf City. It's on the Liberty label. Uh, this is what the album looks like. We always like to show you the albums that uh, are done by our performing guests. So, um, I guess you now know who they are and what they're up to. Let's give them a nice welcome. Here are Jan and Dean. But a goodie, Surf City, here we come. Well, it ain't got a backseat or a rear window, but it still gets me where I wanna go. Yeah, and I'm gonna Surf City, cause it's still the one. You know, we're gonna Surf City, gonna have some fun. You know, we're gonna Surf City, cause it's still the one. You know, we're gonna Surf City, gonna have some fun now. Two ferns for every boy. Cause there's always something going Surf City, here we come You know they're either out surfing Or they got a party growing Surf City, here we come When I get to Surf City I'll be shooting the curl And all you gotta do is just wink your eye And I'm gonna Surf City Cause it's one You know we're gonna Surf City Gonna have some fun You know we're gonna Surf City Cause it's one You know we're gonna Surf City 
serve fruit. Surf city, here we come. I'll strap my board to my back and hitch a ride in my wetsuit. Surf city, here we come. And when I get to Surf City, I'll be shooting the curl and checking out the parties for a surfer girl. And I'm going to Surf City because it's two to one. You know we're going to Surf City, going to have some fun. You know we're going to Surf City because it's two to one. You know we're going to Surf City, going to have some fun. summer music or what all right that's awesome i think it was steve allen wasn't it? it that was his show okay he was clearly clueless as to who they are he's reading this thing well i think i got it covered here that was about the worst introduction i've ever heard did you notice they messed up their lyrics about four times okay that was awesome but it was the little ladies at the end the little church ladies with their hair just nicely up in curls, and they just smiled, weren't those nice boys. <laughs> they were nice boys. Yeah. That is summer music. That was fun. So when I turned on Top 44 Summer Songs, I'm expecting to have some fun while I'm listening and working on my deck. And there was an occasional song like that, but mostly what I was being assaulted with was music that I'd never heard before. I couldn't see any identification with summer. And it was angry and vulgar. And I heard the first one, I'm like, what in the world? Why do you call this summer music? What, what am I listening to here? About the second song of that, I turned it off. I'm not listening to this. I expected something that was fun, something that was joyful, something that would bring me to this feeling of summer, right? It's like it's summer. We've got to wear our summer shirts and we've got to have a good time. That's what I was expecting. Instead, I was being dragged into this pit of ugliness. And if I was going to have the joy I needed that afternoon working on the deck on my mower, rather than just feeling yucky, by this music that I was listening to, I needed to do something. And so I turned it off. I turned away from it. I said, this stuff is not going to bring joy to my spirit. I was totally disappointed. King David wrote Psalm 51 at a time in his life when he was feeling pretty yucky. Joy was decidedly not present in his spirit, and he was desiring to do something about it. So we're going to read this psalm this morning, and um, it's a little bit longer than we typically read, but 
Please be patient as we share this together. Psalm 51, we read this. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit away from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise, for you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Do good in your good pleasure to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you shall be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then they shall say, then they shall offer bulls on your altar. Did you sense that David is longing for a joy that has escaped him. Verse 8 and verse 12 are pretty explicit. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. David clearly is writing at a time when he feels yucky. The joy which he has known by being an intimate relationship with God is gone. There's a heaviness, there's a weightiness to his experience right now. And he wants something to happen to change that. Now to understand exactly why the joy is lost, we have to be aware of the incidents of 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And we need to just give a brief synopsis of this. If you are not familiar with this, I do encourage you to read it. Read it this afternoon and then read it in conjunction with Psalm 51. And even Psalm 32 wouldn't hurt to tie in with that. But 2 Samuel chapter 11, when chapter 10 finishes, you need to understand this. We've been looking at the life of Samuel. When chapter 10 finishes, Samuel is at the pinnacle the very pinnacle of all goodness and grace and power and joy and fullness in his life. His life will never be better than it is at the end of chapter 10. So you ought to understand that. 
Because chapter 11 opens with this. It happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And as you follow chapter 11 through, you find out there's an incident uh, that unfolded. The incident began when he was up on his rooftop and he looks down into the private area of somebody nearby and there's a woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. He desires her. He's the king. So he calls for her, sleeps with her. She then, not too much longer after, her sending word, says she's with child. So now he's got a problem on his hands and he knows how to solve it. You see, her husband is one of his soldiers. So she calls for his soldier to be sent back from the battlefield. And uh, he greets his soldier, gets a report from the field, and says, uh, just take a rest. Go home now and rest. We'll send you back to the battle. And uh, next morning, find, come to find out his soldier, Uriah, his name is, Uriah the Hittite, he did not go back to be with Bathsheba. He slept at the king's gate. When asked why, he said, uh, my men are out in the field, and I can't be with my wife when they're all out in the middle of war. So David calls him back that night again, and this time he gets him drunk. He wines and dines him, and then sends him home, figuring now in this case, of course, he's going to go to his beautiful wife, and again, he sleeps at the gate. So David sends word via Uriah. He sends him back to the battlefield with a sealed document that says to the commander Joab, that says, put this guy at the front of the battle and then step back from him. And that's what happens. And Uriah is killed in battle. And then word gets back to David that, yep, Uriah has been killed. And he's kind of like, oh, well, you know, the, the good and the bad, they all fall in battle. That's the, nature, that's the nature of war. And we read at the end of chapter 11, we read this. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she had mourned for her husband. And when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to the house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. See, he thought he had it all covered up. He thought that he had just kind of like set this thing aside. Now when he finds out that, oh, she's with child, everybody's going to assume, well, you know what? It's David's wife, it's either his child, or, well, it happened somehow when Uriah was there. But he's got it covered up. Uriah's out of the picture. He's going to have uh, Bathsheba there. They're going to be the parents of this child. Everything is good. This is the context in which you need to remember these weighty statements uh, that David makes. Chapter 12 opens up with this statement. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David... And he came to him and said to him, There were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. And Nathan the prophet tells David this story about this rich man and this poor man. And the rich man had a lot of livestock and he had wealth and he had everything you could want. And the poor man had one little, one little ewe lamb and he loved his little ewe lamb, slept with his little ewe lamb. And the rich man had a visitor come. And rather than take from his own wealth to feed the visitor, he went and grabbed this little ewe lamb and slew it and fed the little ewe lamb to the visitor. And David heard this story. He was incensed. He was absolutely filled with indignation. And we, he wants to know who the guy is. He's going to pay a price. And Nathan says to him, You are the man. 
because you took from Uriah who had one wife who he loved and you took her and you killed him. This is the setting now, friends. This is the context in which David is feeling really very, very yucky, which is why I, we encourage you, I am encouraging also to take in when we, Psalm 32, just listen to this part, also written in this same context. Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent, remember? He just thought he'd put it away. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. And David knew he felt yucky. And he was missing some joy that he had understood the end of chapter 10, the joy, or, yeah, the end of chapter 10, the joy was incredible. It seemed to escape him once chapter 11 unfolded. So from this, friends, we're just going to learn a couple of thoughts about sustaining joy. Sustaining the joy of our salvation requires, and you'll see them in this psalm, first it requires, and this is the important operant word, Sincere confession on our part. Notice, if you will, verse 3. And the easiest way for us to examine this, this psalm is to not take it verse by verse. We're going to take it thematically. So if you're all right with that, we're going to go in thematically. Uh, sincere confession. Verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Got to understand in verse 3 when he says, I acknowledge my transgressions, that the thought behind that word is that of rebellion. Sometimes used in the idea of a crime. I acknowledge my rebellion. Well, who was he rebelling against? In verse 4, David is confessing that my rebellion was against God. Now, Bathsheba and Uriah were caught up in my rebellion. They were victimized by it. But ultimately, my rebellion was against the one who will one day stand and judge me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Not to, not to minimize that they were affected by it, but the rebellion, the transgressive part of this, was against the one who may be found just when you speak and blameless when you judge. David acknowledges one day, I'm not going to stand before anybody other than you one day. And the rebellion that I have had in my heart will be clearly that it was against you. Because if I had listened to you, if I'd been attuned to the spirit that you were trying to speak to me at the time, I would not have gone that direction. But I did go that direction and my rebellion was against you. And notice he says in verse 5, in this time of confession, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not talking about the act of conception that brought him into the world. He's speaking of the fact that's relative to all of us. We all, when we enter this world, enter this world already as sinners. I know it's hard to imagine. We see these little babies. We think they're all wonderful and perfect, but they got something from us, parents, called the sin nature. And he's acknowledging that the truth. Here's how we say it, right? 
I don't sin. I'm just ready to say it, and there you go. I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. Hear the difference? I'm not a sinner because I sin. I sin because I'm a sinner. My very nature is one taught, caught, and and steeped in rebellion to God. The Bible says the carnal mind, the mind without God's work in it, the carnal mind is enmity with God. By my very nature, I am in rebellion to God. That's why mankind found, finds thousands of ways to reject God and means to go another direction. And he says, in my very nature, I was born one who, Lord, I just, I'm prone to turn away from you. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. And you see, friends, here's what it comes down to. It's about getting honest with ourselves before God. You see, David has come to that point, and it's a blessed place to come to. Painful, but blessed. To come to that point where we quit trying to fool God ourselves and everybody around us about how wonderful and holy and good and righteous we are. David, under the conviction what Nathan brought and God's heavy hand upon him, comes to that place where he realizes, I am guilty before God. I'd like to throw this out as a thought we might take from this. There's no hiding in the crowd here. The kind of guilt that is overcoming David at this point It's not a guilt that says, hey, man, you kind of messed up. Yeah, I I did mess up, didn't I? I really did. Well, you know, everybody messes up sometime. You know, everybody screws up a little bit now and then. Everybody gets off the track now and then, don't they? Yeah, you're right. I kind of messed up. It's like, no, that's not what David is feeling. There's no hiding in the crowd at this point. As God brought his conviction to David it was, there was no excusing himself as being one of many. David is seeing that against him and him alone have I done this rebellion against you, Lord. He sees himself and God, nothing else. And in this picture of himself and God, there's one thing that is clear. He's guilty. No excuses. You see, friends, we're talking about the kind of honesty with ourselves. When we come to that place where we say... As painful as it is, I did that. No excuses. No explanations. Don't blame anyone else. We're not, we're not looking for something where somehow you know, well, I, mean, I never felt like my dad loved me, so therefore, nothing. I did that. Before God, I did that. There's nothing else to say. That's the kind of honesty that David was feeling. That's the kind of conviction that was brought to his spirit. It's about getting honest with yourself. You desire truth in the inward parts. And don't we all just find it a little bit easier to, you know, kind of, let's not get quite so direct about this, Gare. Am I really, you know, that guilty right before God? And the answer is, yes, we are. But it's in acknowledging that guilt where the healing can begin. 
Remember, sustaining the joy of our salvation requires sincere confession on our part. For you do not, verse 16, you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. Wouldn't that be easier? Wouldn't that be so much easier? Man, I messed up. I really don't even like to think about how badly I messed up. So I'll go light three candles and and squash two grasshoppers and burn them in the candles. That's my little sacrifice. Wouldn't that be easier to offer a sacrifice? I go, got that covered. No, I don't have to think about it anymore. But David's going, that's not enough. That isn't going to work. You're looking for something internal from me, Lord. Because if I could give a burnt offering and just solve this thing, make it go away, that'd be great. But he says, the sacrifices of God, and this is our memory verse, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. Is that not magnificent truth, friends? The magnificent truth is as painful as it is to come to that place and say, I did that. And to own it completely is to know that right behind that is this truth. And when we are willing to say, and Lord, that was wrong. I did it. And there's no excusing it. I did it and I am ashamed of what I did. This God will never turn away from. These, O oh God, are broken and contrite heart. You will not despise that God receives us as sinners just with ugly, godless, horrible things that we have done. And when we offer true confession and say, Lord, I really did it. And I'm ashamed and I was wrong. And before you, this is horrible and it's deserving of judgment and you have every right to bring judgment on me for this, Lord, because I did it. God does not despise that confession. He receives that confession. So sustaining the joy of our salvation requires sincere confession on our part, and that's about getting honest, and serious transformation on God's part. Now, the transformation is not that God has to be transformed. We need Him to transform us. We need him to change us. And notice how much of this psalm David is pleading with God to change him. He's got the confession out there. I really screwed up and it's before you and it was horrible and I'm turning from it and, and it, just, it just burdens me to know I did this. But God, here's, here's what I'm asking of you. Verse 1, he began with the request. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He begins with this request that God would do a transforming work in him. How do you approach the holy God of the universe before whom you know I have messed up horribly? He committed adultery and then had the, the husband of the lady to whom, with whom he committed adultery murdered and then tried to cover it up. How do you stand before a holy God and say, forgive me? And he begins with that because there's something he understands. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness. That word 
In the Hebrew, the word is hesed. It is a well-known Old Testament word. And it's part of God's covenant language with his people of his loyal love, which never, ever fails towards his people Israel, towards those whom he is redeeming. And it's based upon that aspect of God's character that David comes and says, man, I have screwed up big time. And Lord, the only hope I have is that your loyal love will become active and change me. Notice verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a, a plant that they would use to apply water or blood at different times of cleansing. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do you hear His pleading that God would do a transforming work. He said, this is what I need. Because God, if you just leave me where I'm at, I'm going to keep doing and keep messing up because I was born in iniquity. I need you to transform me. I need a change inside of me. Do not cast me away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Uphold me by your generous spirit. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. And isn't that what we need, friends? Isn't that what we're confessing our need is when we came to Christ? Isn't that what we said? How sometimes we didn't understand the depth of it. Some of us, after we came to Christ, we were safe in Him and Jesus' work had done it all. But then we began to realize, you know, it might even have been years later. Man, we walked into some city. I didn't know I was that bad. Yeah, I'm that bad. And the longer we walk in this stuff, the more we understand i got to have God change me. God has to transform me. And isn't that what we've come to understand in greater fullness from the New Testament once Christ has come? Isn't that at the very heart of the gospel? Isn't that the very thing that stirs us and enlivens us? Is that he didn't just give us a, 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 a list of rules, do this, don't do this, now live up to that, and if you don't do this or that, and you don't live up to that, well, now you're in trouble. Instead, he has said, look, you're in trouble already because you have a sin nature that, that you don't have the ability to control and you don't have the ability to solve the problem, so here's what I'm going to do. One, I sent Christ to die, and uh, he's going to pay the penalty of that sin, and he's going to, then the Holy Spirit's going to come and the Holy Spirit's going to begin to transform you. Holy Spirit's going to take my word. It's going to change you so that as time goes on and you live in my word, as time goes on, you are going to become more and more like Christ. And the ultimate end product is going to be Christ. The very image of Christ is going to be, is going to be wrought in all of its fullness in you because I have been transforming you And I've been bringing you to a place that you can nowhere get there on your own. And friends, when that transformation happens, there's just a few hints we get as to the outcome of that. Okay? Verse 13 said, Then I will teach teach transgressors your ways, and sinners shall be converted to you. My tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. I'm going to be able to serve you in a new way and I'm going to have insight and understanding where I can help other people find the blessedness of what it means 
to walk in the joy of the Lord, to walk in that place where the abject ugliness and reality of our sin has been laid forth honestly before God and he has said, because of my loyal love, because of what Christ has done, that's taken care of. Now get up and let's walk in a newness of life and I will make Christ alive in you. And it's in that place where serving him becomes wonderful. I was speaking with another pastor this week and uh, he was describing being in a golf outing that was a um, relative to some, some secular entity and he said from the moment we started he said it was just so effectively the kind of music that I heard is what the language was. He said it was 18 holes non-stop. And he said, and it's not that I so much was offended. He said, there's nothing creative. He said, it's just, it just, they got nothing new to say. Just keep living in this place. And I said, don't you think that's something about the change that God brings to our lives? Is that when you've, when you've known the Lord and he's transforming you into Christ-likeness, you listen to that, you hear that, and you just go, Yuck. It's not that it's, it's not funny. It's not uplifting. There's nothing here that draws me. And I just want to be away from it. So whether it's music that we turn off or not putting ourselves into settings where we're watching, you know, television programs that are degrading and are going to leave us in a spot where when we're done, we go, why do I feel so dirty for having spent an hour and a half, giving an hour and a half of my life to this this nonsense that is here or whether or not there's settings where we know that if I put myself into that setting with that group of people it is just going to be continual yuck that I'm facing you see the evidence of God at work in our lives as we go I don't want that that's like stepping back into my past and just living in the garbage that he's saving me from and I want to be involved in something I want to live in the presence of something that is far more uplifting, far more joyful, and that is in fellowship with Jesus Christ, where he is making me whole and transforming me out of that garbage into something new. Friends, as you move through the summer, this, this entire summer, because we're not going to see as much of each other as we would if it's a regular weeks during the, the entire year as you move through the summer, I pray that we just pay attention the stuff that's coming into my life right now, is this uplifting me? Is this the stuff that helps me be transformed into Christ's likeness? Or is there some really trashy things here that I find they're just yucky? You can turn away from them. When David was feeling yucky by what was there, what he turned away. He got honest. And he turned away and said, yeah, this isn't good. So pay attention. I just encourage us to do that. Pay attention to the things that we let come into our lives so that we can live in that joy where it's like, hey, this is the stuff that is good and blessing and rich. Father, thank you for the, the rich joy of being with your people. Thank you, Father, that in Jesus Christ you are making us new, Lord. We were hopelessly lost. We had no hope. And Father, when we get honest about that, it's not pretty. It's not pretty at all to be honest before you because you enable us to see that we really have not much. But then, Lord, you lift us up 
by your loving kindness through the blood of Jesus Christ and you promise to transform us. And I pray that we will be walking in that transforming love throughout this summer, that there really is a joy that fills our spirit, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.